0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to The American Experiment, a republic if you can keep it. A
1: podcast about government, politics, and the U.S. Constitution. In this episode, we're going to be answering 10 questions that people submitted to us. So hopefully you enjoy.
0: We'll get started with question one. Why can the federal government criminalize marijuana and states legalize it?
1: So I think this is a really good question because it's It's pretty odd for people who aren't aware of sort of the way drug laws work in this country. It's strange that under federal law, you know, possession of marijuana or use of marijuana is a crime. Mm -hmm. But under state law, uh, lots of states have legalized it. You know, some states for even up to recreational use, you know, people can, uh, you know, grow it themselves, sell it, use it you know, some states it can just be used medicinally. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think this is a good question because it highlights, well, why is it, you know, why can it be a crime and not a crime at the same time? Right. Probably the simplest answer to this question is the individual states and the federal government function as separate sovereignties. So they're technically separate governments, right. if you want to think about it that way. So the laws might overlap So there are lots of instances where, you know, in states where marijuana is illegal, you could be charged for, you know, possession or sale of marijuana as a federal crime or as a state crime. And those sort of operate under separate systems. So, you know, that would be the way it is in a lot of states. So you could be charged under state law or federal law. What's weird is the fact that, you know, in some states you could be charged as a, you know, for possession or use or sale as a federal crime, but not as a state crime because the state has legalized it. And that's just a weird function of how our system works is that you can be charged under either system. And so I think something a lot of people don't realize is a lot of crimes that people do commit, there is prosecutorial discretion to determine whether that crime should be charged as a federal crime or a state crime. So take something a little flashier like, kidnapping, if you kidnap someone, you could be charged for kidnapping as a state crime by the state, you know, by the state prosecutor, or you could be charged by the federal prosecutor, or you could be charged by both because it's technically it's different systems that are working. Now, usually they're not going to waste the time to prosecute you under both. Right. But they can.
0: Didn't we say that the federal government comes, like takes precedence over states? So how can states even make that law in the first place if it goes against, like, the federal government regulations?
1: So the Supremacy Clause is what you're talking about, you know, says if there's a a federal law and a state law in conflict, the federal law trumps. Right. Um, But those laws aren't in conflict, per se. Like, the federal law still could be pursued. Um, So it's, you know... The federal statute isn't saying it's not a crime under state law. It's just saying it is a crime under federal law. Mm -hmm. You know, so they're working under separate systems. Hmm. Um, Now, with all that being said, pursuing, especially when it comes to something like marijuana that is so much in the public eye, generally crimes for marijuana possession, use or sale are not are just simply not going to be prosecuted by a federal prosecutor. And there's been a lot of guidance that has been passed sort of in for federal prosecutors in the cases that they decide to bring, where it would be, you know, very, very, very unlikely Mm -hmm. that if you're in a state where it's legal under state law that the federal government is going to prosecute. One just as a matter of it's usually not worth the federal government's time to prosecute some, you know, low-level, you know, marijuana offender.
0: So should they just kind of do away with that law? Like the federal government just say, this isn't illegal anymore. And the states can just decide.
1: Well, that's, you know, that's a policy question. Mm -hmm. What what should they do? I mean, but the reality is, that's basically how it's working out right now. If states decide to legalize it, the federal government's not bringing a heavy hand down and prosecuting. Mm -hmm. If states have it, you know, criminalized, then the federal government is still acting in that scope. Interestingly enough, there was a case back in the early 2000s, arguing that you know the government shouldn't have the ability to criminalize as a federal crime marijuana because you know i said most marijuana is you know not all the time but in a lot of cases it's just grown in a state it's sold to people in the state why should the federal government be involved in that at all um but in that case the supreme court basically said any any sale or use of marijuana impacts interstate commerce in the aggregate. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it, it can be um, treated as a federal crime. So, you know, the, the federal government clearly has constitutional authority under the Supreme Court's precedent to criminalize marijuana and to prosecute those crimes. But generally, as a matter of discretion, they don't in a state where it's legalized.
0: Okay. All right. Question two. Can the federal government order a mask mandate? In short, no.
1: Yeah, so I think, you know, whenever you're asking the question, what authority, whenever you're examining the question of, of, can the federal government do X, the first thing you have to ask is, well, where in the Constitution would they have the authority to do that? Mm-hmm. You know, because like we talked about when we talked about the legislative branch, the government has enumerated powers, you know, Congress has specific powers that it is granted. Right. And so if you're trying to answer can the government do something, you have to say does it actually line up with one of those powers? You know, probably the best argument that the federal government would have in pursuing a mass mandate would be through the commerce clause. The commerce clause basically allows the government to regulate and and pass laws with anything that, that affects interstate commerce. And so it's been interpreted incredibly broadly. It's sort of the classic cases that the government could, could regulate how much wheat a farmer could grow, is sort of this old famous case. And so I guess the Commerce Clause argument for the federal government would be wearing a mask has an effect on interstate commerce. I think that's a pretty attenuated argument. I think you could try to pass a law on those grounds. I'm skeptical because that you know that really kind of is compelling a behavior, but it's possible. I don't want to rule out that that couldn't happen. Mm-hmm. My guess is the most likely way that the the federal government could you know if if it wanted to impose a mass mandate is that it would just condition receipt of federal funds on states requiring a mask mandate, Mm -hmm. you know, so the federal government gives massive amounts of money to the states, you know, for infrastructure and for schools and, you know, for all sorts of things that sort of power how the states work. So my guess is if the federal government wanted to accomplish a mask mandate, they would do it essentially by conditioning it on. Like they
0: would be like, if you guys don't order a mask mandate, we're going to tax you.
1: No, it's not. It's not taxing. They're not taxing the states. It would be withholding funds.
0: Oh, so it would be like, yeah. we're
1: not going to, you know, we give you X amount of money for education.
0: Uh-huh.
1: We're not going to give you that money unless you impose a mass mandate. Mm-hmm. Even that, you know, I could certainly see issues with. Like, that That would be a pretty, you know, could be a pretty politicized move, especially depending on what you're conditioning the receipt of funding on. Mm-hmm. Um you know so that might be unpopular but it would be it would be it would be possible to do yeah um and the issue there isn't that congress would be passing a law though saying you Mm -hmm. must wear masks it would be basically trying to
0: just manipulate the system right Uh, and
1: the federal government does this quite a bit i mean Mm -hmm. they condition the receipt of funds upon sort of specific performance of, of certain actions by states right so those are those are two possibilities i think the other thing to, to note though is any sort of enforcement of a national mask mandate would require state and local participation and so
0: mm-hmm.
1: we'll see what happens but i would not expect to see a national mask mandate because i think you know it would instantly be subject to legal challenge
0: right
1: it would be fairly, could could be fairly divisive, Mm -hmm. depending on what and where you're looking at. And fundamentally, I think it would require participation. So I think it would be more of a symbolic action. And I think the most likely avenue would be conditioning it on funds. Mm
0: -hmm. All right, next question. What happens if the president-elect dies before inauguration? Do you want Uh, to handle this one? So yeah, so this one is kind of similar to when the president dies and the VP would just step in as acting president.
1: Yeah, and this has never happened before, you know, so it is, it it is a little bit of an interesting question. My guess is that the vice president elect would be sworn in as vice president. Yeah. And then they would assume that role because there's a vacancy in the office of presidency.
0: And then would they choose their own VP or would the, um, who would become vice president then?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So the way it works is that there's a required congressional approval mm-hmm. for whoever the president would pick. So I can't remember. Okay. I think maybe it's a two-thirds vote.
0: So they would choose someone and then people would vote on it.
1: But it, it's a congressional vote. So it's, right. not like a, it's not like a general election. No,
0: by people I meant Congress. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, For most of American history, I want to say this changed, I'm thinking with the 25th Amendment. Mm-hmm. But it it changed in the 1940s. So before that, if the president died and the vice president ascended to the presidency, Mm -hmm. they didn't, there was no vice president. That role just stayed vacant. Hmm. And so the line of succession would have passed down, you know, to the Speaker of the House, but there was sort of no stopgap person. Um, And so that was changed. So that's just an interesting... You know, people just they just did yeah. without a vice president if, you know, if, if they had to ascend to the role of the presidency. Mm.
0: All right. Question four. Could Joe Biden have picked Barack Obama to be his VP? So essentially, no, because Obama had already served eight years or two terms as president. There um, is a was it an amendment mm-hmm. that um, talks about the vice president, and the number of terms that they can serve. And um, so basically, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's because of the constitution, like, it, it wouldn't be constitutional for him to, to serve as VP, since he's already served a full term as president.
1: Yeah. So the 22nd Amendment says, provides a term limit on the office of presidency. Yeah. You know, so it says you can do eight years, Um, you can be elected. It says elected. So Mm -hmm. that doesn't quite, you know, elected to the office of president. Yeah. No more than twice. And then it says, you know, well, if you're VP, and you serve less than two years, you can still get two full terms. But Mm -hmm. if you're more than two years, and you ascend to the presidency, then you only get one term. Um, You know, so just on the text of the 22nd Amendment, it seems like, well, that might be possible. Because you wouldn't be – a vice president ascending to the presidency isn't elected to the office of president. Right. But if you go back to the 12th Amendment, um, the 12th Amendment basically says right at the end, any restriction on the president also applies to the vice president. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think what they're getting at there is you can't – when the 12th Amendment was ratified was you can't have a VP who's under 35 – Mm-hmm. The VP has to be a natural-born citizen. You yeah. know, the requirements that the Constitution has on the presidency, mm-hmm. the vice president also has to meet those requirements. Right. So then if you read that in concert with the 22nd Amendment, you would say, well, no, you couldn't have a vice president who couldn't ascend to the office of the presidency because they've already right. served, you know, too right. much time.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. Question number five. Can Congress pass a law limiting the Supreme Court of the United States justices to 18 year terms so can they say you guys can only serve for 18 years what do you think i'm guessing no because isn't it already in the constitution it would have to be an amendment
1: right that's right so
0: you could amend the constitution to say justices can only serve for 18 years but it's already laid out in the constitution so you couldn't pass a law it would have to be an amendment
1: right I think we talked about this a little bit in our Supreme Court episode, but, you know, the Constitution says justices, you know, they're appointed for life and they can't be removed, basically unless there's some sort of misconduct. Mm -hmm. I think it says accepting cases of bad behavior or something like that. Mm -hmm. Or I think it says they hold their term in good behavior. um, So they would have to be impeached and removed. In other words, you couldn't just say you've served this amount of time. Now you're done as a, you know, as a congressional act. Mm -hmm. But you could amend the Constitution to do that. Um, But it is interesting, as we noted in our episode, there's nothing in the Constitution that sets the size of the court. It just says once you're on the court, you can't get kicked off.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, So they could pass a law saying, we're going to make the Supreme Court have 15 justices on
1: it. Yep. Okay. Okay. Or 100 or, you know, whatever they whatever they wanted to do, Congress could do that. Mm -hmm. But once you appoint them, you couldn't get rid of them. Right. Until so when Lincoln was president, they actually expanded the court to 10 justices by congressional action. And then they ended up bumping it back down to nine. And Mm -hmm. so they just had to wait for the extra justice to die off. And then they just Mm -hmm. didn't appoint anyone.
0: Okay, next question. What happens when an originalist justice or a living constitutionalist has to grapple with an opinion from someone of the other judicial philosophy? So if you're an originalist and there's an opinion from a living constitutionalist or vice versa, Mm -hmm. what do you do? I think
1: this highlights a lot of the tension that you see on the Supreme Court because in modern memory there have always been nine justices but the composition of who's on the court is always changing right which is why it's such a big deal when you know when people talk about well what's the you know is there a conservative majority is there a liberal majority you know what is this block of justices on the court doing Mm -hmm. but even though that changes um you know even though you might have more justices in a certain ideological camp there still are lots of opinions that were given by the court that predate those justices. And so I, you know, this question is getting at, what do you do with those? Mm -hmm. And I think this is such a good question because I don't know what most people assume, but I think it could be logical to think, well, they just say, you know, well, it's whatever we say it is now, Mm. right? That, That you would say, well, you know, 50 years ago, those justices saw things differently, but we think they were wrong. Boom, you know, case over. Mm -hmm. And while that does happen, it's pretty rare. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is a, a legal doctrine called stare decisis.
0: Which means already decided.
1: Yeah, already decided. What that doctrine says is that the court is going to be very cautious when it overturns a prior precedent of the court. But one of the biggest reasons for this doctrine is just predictability. Like when people are going into court, it matters a lot that they know sort of what the law is and what the rules are, which is why we look at past opinions of the court and we say, well, that's how the court ruled in the past. That's how they're going to rule in the future. Mm -hmm. And that's how judges that are, you know, on a court below the Supreme Court You know, they can take some confidence in that. Well, we're following what they upheld before, so that's what it's going to be in the future. Right. You know, it helps litigants to know I should bring this case or I shouldn't bring this case based on what's happened in the past. Um, So there are sort of a lot of core institutional reasons why you would not just overturn things Mm -hmm. whenever you think it was wrong. But stare decisis doesn't mean that you never overturn things. And so there are a bunch of factors that the court sort of looks at, and there's no exhaustive list. Um, But they look at things like, you know, really obviously, like, do we think they were actually right? Right. You know, do we think that when they construed this provision, it was construed correctly? Yeah. Um, You know, do we think even if it was incorrect, it was a plausible reading? Or do we think it was, you know, so far off the mark? Um, they look at things like, well, has it been workable? Like, has it led to a lot of problems? Mm-hmm. Or do we think, like, this is wrong, but it's not really hurting anyone? Uh, so sometimes this will happen, like, here's a precedent from 80 years ago. But they'll say, like, we don't really see any anything bad that's come of it in the meantime. Or, you know, maybe there are three cases in 80 years. Why change it? Mm-hmm. So that's another consideration. Y- you know, you're looking at what's going to happen – what the court frequently calls reliance interest. Like, are people relying on a case like this having, you know, being decided this way? Mm -hmm. If we change it, are there going to be massive consequences because the legal system has really formed itself around this? So, So those are some of the factors that a court would look at in deciding if they should overturn a precedent. But there's no magic balancing act. You know, it does really depend on the individual justices, whether they would think that a specific decision should be overturned. But I think the key point of this is is that very often justices will affirm an opinion that that they do think is wrong because they think there's just enough on balance with precedent, um, you know, that an opinion should be kept around. And if you study the Supreme Court much at all, you'll see people doing this all the time. You know, you'll see people like Justice Scalia affirming doctrines that you know he thinks are wrong but because starry decisis weighs so heavily in favor of keeping that precedent around.
0: Yeah. Question 7. Nebraska has a unicameral legislature. Do any other states have structures different than the federal model?
1: So, a unicameral legislature
0: meaning one house. One
1: house. Nebraska is the only one with a, a unicameral legislature. But a lot of states have a divided executive branch. So, in the United States, the president is the head of the executive branch. And the president appoints a bunch of officers that serve under the president. And it's a bit simplistic to say those people are the president's agents. But, you know, basically, like the president appoints a secretary of the treasury and an attorney general and a secretary of state. And the president can fire those people if he wants to. You know, they're they're to put it really simply. They're the president's employees. Don't take that to court. Um, But. In states, there is some difference here because a lot of officers are, they're specifically elected. And so there are divided executive branches. So there doesn't have to be that agreement that there is at the federal level. So, for instance, for a lot of states, the secretary of state is an elected position. The attorney general is an elected position. And so the executive functions of the state are actually vested in different executive officials and so that does create some conflict you could have an attorney general who is a democrat and a governor who's a republican you know and the attorney general might be prosecuting things in court that the governor strongly disagrees with um, which can happen in the federal government but you know there's there's more unity of command in that structure so that's one example uh, that comes to mind of of how a lot of state models are different from the federal model but i'm sure there are other examples as well
0: Mm. Okay. Nebraska and Maine divide their electoral votes. What are the pros and cons of other states adopting this model?
1: So when we're talking about dividing electoral votes, um, the way it works in most states with the Electoral College is that whoever wins the majority of the popular vote in that state wins all of the electoral votes. Right. Um, the way it works in those states is is that if you win, whoever wins the popular vote in a particular district of that state wins the electoral votes for that district. Mm -hmm. There would be massive changes if that was a system that was adopted nationwide. Mm -hmm. Because one thing that the Electoral College does is that it counts state electoral, the, the way that most states use the Electoral College, Is that it counts state votes as a unified whole. Right. So all you have to do is win the state. You know, if Mm -hmm. you have, you know, if there are 1 million votes and you have 500,001, you get all the electoral votes. Right. So splitting it up and saying, looking at more of a district by district comparison... Most people don't win in all the districts, right? you know, and so there would be a lot more division of those electoral votes. You could argue that people would care more because they would say, well, maybe we can win this particular district.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I feel like it'd be harder to determine, like, I feel like you'd have a lot more recounts, right? Like, because the margins would be closer with smaller numbers, I feel like. That makes sense.
1: Yeah, maybe. I mean, it just depends on like particular districts. Mm-hmm. I guess how close particular districts are.
0: Yeah. But it, um, it'd be like Because that
1: goes to districting too, which we'll talk about yeah. later. But um But yeah, it certainly could.
0: Mm.
1: I mean, I think the biggest practical effect is that the Electoral College vote would not perfectly reflect the popular vote, but it would more closely mm-hmm. reflect the popular vote.
0: Mm-hmm. Um yeah.
1: You know, and, and it would be interesting – I would be interested to see how this election would have turned out if you do a district-by-district district comparison. Right. Because, honestly, it's not immediately apparent to me who it helps. Now, I think there are some concerns regarding the way districting is done, which which we'll talk about in a minute. Right. But, um, you know, you could say, well, it it might help Democrats in states like Texas – Right. But it would probably help Republicans in states like California. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it does kind of cut both ways. Right. It would be a very different way of of, um, cutting the system. Mm -hmm. But so I think wherever you stand on the electoral college versus the popular vote, I think would probably influence how people would largely feel about that.
0: Yeah. So what would the state have to do? Like they would to to do that with their electoral votes? Like how come Nebraska and Maine get to do that? But none of the other states do Well,
1: states – I mean, states get to decide. Like, states get to pass these, you know, state – their state election laws.
0: So, they would just have to pass a law and say that's how we're going to do it. Yep. Okay. All right. Number nine. What constitutional amendment would you propose, if any?
1: All right. Why don't you go first? Because I've been talking for a really long time.
0: Okay. I would propose an amendment to get rid of the age limits for offices – so it's like, you know, you have to be 35 to be president, you have to be 30 to be a senator, and 25 to be in the House. And I just feel like that's so arbitrary. So I would probably just say, you can be, you know, if you're old enough to vote, you're old enough to... Serve. Serve, yeah. Yeah. What about you? Mm. Probably, the, in my
1: opinion, the biggest oversight, I'm not 100% sure on the, the best fix of this, but would be problems with the way that elections are carried out and that districting is done. So probably my biggest proposed change would be designed to get at gerrymandering, Mm -hmm. uh, which is the process whereby the, the way it works in most states in the country is that when district lines are drawn for the House of Representatives, the people who get to draw those district lines are the state legislators. So not the not the legislature in Congress, in the federal Congress, but the state legislators, get to draw the district lines. Mm -hmm. Which basically means they get to pick who the people are that get to vote on whether or not they get to stay in their jobs. And we'll do a whole episode on gerrymandering. But at a base level, that obviously presents a conflict of interest and... Someone with impure motives can pretty easily draw those lines in a way that would keep themselves and their own political party in power. Right. So I think some sort of provision that would place the districting power that would just put some constraints on it. I think there are a lot of ways you could do it. You could make the district a map subject to judicial review. Mm-hmm. You could delegate that power to an independent commission, mm-hmm. you know, that's required to have members of both party and independent members. You know, you yeah. can say those maps have to be approved by a bipartisan group. Um, but I think something that would make that process a little fairer and a little less political. Yeah. Uh, because it really does let legislators draw lines to keep themselves in power f- far beyond when they would be if it were not otherwise. And just to illustrate that point, uh, sort of of how that works. If you think like you have 50% of the vote, you know, or you have f- f- 55% of the vote, you can sort of, if you're drawing the districts, you can spread out the people who are going to vote for your political party over those districts in a way that would let you win maybe eight districts, even though you only have 55% of the vote. And your opponent would only win two because you sort of lump their people together in districts, you know, so they're winning those two districts by 80%, you know, and you're winning yours by 55%. And so just the way that you sort of package people can let you retain more legislative control.
0: Okay, and then last question. What is the best feature of another country's constitution?
1: So I've, I've tried really hard not to quibble with any questions. My slight Caveat on this question is every country has every country's constitutional needs are different depending on who's in the country, what sort of struggles they're facing. You know, so I don't think there is one constitution that would fit or work well for every country. Because Mm -hmm. every country has particular needs. Every country has particular problems that they're facing. Every country has particular interest groups. You know, so I I think like the U.S. Constitution, the concept of having a a Senate and a House of Representatives to sort of balance states and individuals, that's not a concern that you have in every country. Right. Um, You know, just as one example. So all that to say... I think whatever provisions you look to are going to be influenced by what problems you think that country has that need to be solved by a constitution or need to be helped by a constitution. Two, I think that would be really interesting for the United States. Um, One is the concept of having a divided executive branch between having a figurehead president and sort of a a substantive president, if you will. So one person that would fill the role of head of state and one person that would fill the role of like chief administrator. It's my opinion that one of the problems we have with the American presidential system is that we kind of have two, I don't want to say that they're inherently competing jobs, but they're kind of competing jobs, right? Like we want someone that can go in and be a great leader and administrator of a massive bureaucratic system. But we also want someone, you know, who can smile, wave and kiss the babies. Like, you know, someone who's just likable and personable and we feel like it it speaks for us and represents our country well. You know, those sorts of functions. And frankly, I think a lot of the time those two like personality functions do not go together. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people who have those really great people skills and are really inspiring, maybe don't have those technocratic skills that are required to sort of do the, the day-to-day running of government. And a lot of people who have those sort of technical management leadership skills are not very inspiring. And so I think it would, it would be an interesting thing to ponder, like some countries do. What if we separated those role, roles, you know, What if we elected a movie star or a sports star or, you know, someone that would represent the country that we just we just think this person's great. We like them. You know, they're great to watch. Right. And they sort of handled those roles. And then we elected someone who had more of that bureaucratic background. You know, and another way to look at that is the head of that sort of day to day running of the executive branch uh, could be the head of the legislature. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that's how some countries like in Great Britain, you have a Prime Minister right you know who handles those functions, and you have a queen um There are lots of issues with that approach, but i think I think that is an issue we face in this country when we go to elect a president um I think there's something there's some part of us that's drawn to candidates who have really detailed policy proposals and they've clearly thought through things. But usually we also think they're kind of boring and not that exciting and, you know. Yeah. So they have a hard time gaining traction. But we're also drawn to candidates who, you know, grab a lot of attention and, you know, um, inspire people. And so it might be interesting to think about separating those roles. Mm-hmm. I think one other thing we could think about is restructuring our electoral system. So we talked about gerrymandering, but a lot of countries... Uh, The way we do elections in America in the vast majority of cases is saying whoever wins a majority of the votes, so over 50% or a plurality, which is just the most of whoever run, wins the election. That inherently pushes people towards a two-party system because the idea is that you have to have the most votes to win. But some countries do what's called proportional representation where they have sort of these larger districts and they say you know, this district is going to send 10 people to Congress. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we sort of balance out the votes. You know, you might say, well, each party gets to select X number of people or this party got 50% of the vote. They get to send five candidates. This party got 30% of the vote. They get to send three candidates. This party got 20%. They get to send two candidates. And so it would sort of tr- it, proportional representation tries to sort of push things out and say just because you didn't win the most votes doesn't mean you don't get any representation
0: right
1: now there are lots of problems with proportional representation i'm not saying it would be a perfect fit for america but i think it's a fascinating sort of function of how a lot of other governments do elections and mm-hmm. it, it'd, it'd be something that would be interesting to think about how it would play out in america
0: all right well that is it for this q a episode we will be back with season two Do you want to tell us about Season 2, babe?
1: Yeah, so Season 2, we're going to be looking at the legislative branch. We're not going to be going line by line through Article 1. Kind of in this season, you know, we sort of went through each article, the Constitution, spent a couple episodes on it. We're going to be addressing a lot of the issues in Article 1, but we're going to spend a lot of time sort of talking about the process. You know, how do bills become laws? How do committees work? Um, so we're
0: talking about the legislative procedural
1: rule, rules, those sorts of things, and then talking about like actual areas that
0: legislation is passed and what the congressional powers are.